Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. This week, we're going to dive back into the archives for an interview that David Kern did with David Hicks several years ago. In this interview, they discuss his book, Norms and Nobility, several questions from readers of the book itself, uh, some of David's own questions, and they discuss the future of classical education as well. Hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to Quiddity, the podcast of the Circe Institute and the audio companion to CirceInstitute.org. I'm David Kern, and today I am joined by Mr. David Hicks, author of Norms and Nobility, one of the seminal and most important works uh, on classical education, possibly on education uh, at all, written in the last hundred years. And uh, we asked for some of your questions on social media and on our website, and uh, thankfully we received several of them and several very good questions, and, and I had a chance to, to pose some of those questions to Mr. Hicks in a recent interview. I began with a question that came in from Graham, and he asks, if you were writing norms and nobility now, would you have emphasized anything more than you did then, and has anything shaken your faith in classical education? This is what he said. Oh, well, I don't think anything has shaken my faith in it. I mean, if I don't even know what really that means. I, I believe in classical education, or I believe in the education I described in the book. I suppose if I were rewriting it, I would, I'm, I'm sure that if I were rewriting it based upon a lifetime of experience, it wouldn't be the same book. And there are some things I would uh, probably emphasize more than others. But I, I, I think the definition I gave for it at the very beginning of the book uh, about, you know, my effort was to try to pull the idea of classical education away from those who thought of it just in terms of either something ancient or in terms of uh, learning Greek and learning Latin. Uh, and even to a degree away from sort of a Dorothy Sayers understanding of it as you know, grammar, rhetoric, and, and logic, those things are all helpful. But I wanted to give it a more sort of theoretical construct. And I don't think I would change the theoretical construct. I, I think classical education is still about the development of style through language and conscience through myth. I think that was actually, if the, if the book contributed anything to, you know, the world of ideas, I think that definition is probably... Uh, I'm sure it can be argued, but I think it is what the book contributed. Um, I suppose I talk a little bit more about science and, and the way science has uh, completely sort of captured our modern thinking about education. Uh, can, can you explain explain that a little bit? Yeah, I, well, I think that, you know, you know, science starts from a very the presuppositions of science are not the same by any means as the presuppositions of a classical education. Presuppositions of science is a sort of naturalistic assumption that everything we can know and can think about is represented to us through our five senses. It's a, you know, it's a very materialistic, positivistic sort of assumption about what is knowable and what we should be studying and how we should be studying. We should be using methods that are, uh, that science is comfortable with in terms of our study. That was certainly not the view of the ancients. And it's certainly not my view. Uh, 
And I think it's very important, you know, in the international baccalaureate programs, uh, the sort of one of the ultimate courses students take is the theory of knowledge course, which I think is a really helpful course if properly taught, because, you know, those that epistemological question is such a crucial question. How do we know what we know? Mm. Uh, and and what methods do we use to know certain things? And is everything knowable? Uh, I mean, those are really fundamental questions, and I think they get sort of skirted over in most modern education, uh, and they're never really directly addressed. So students are, you know, sort of come into the world confused about how they know what they know and what what is it what is it they really know, as opposed to what is it they think they know, and. Uh, how are our methods of acquiring knowledge, how do they differ depending on uh, the questions we're asking and what it is we're trying to know? Hmm. There's, there's a lot of confusion around that. I think, if, you know, if I were rewriting the book today, I'd probably add a chapter on theories of knowledge and how those sort of epistemological concerns have to be sorted out earlier in a child's education than we now do earlier in a more clear way. So what do you, um, what do you think is the result of not, of those lack of of epistemological questions or what does that end up meaning to a student as they get older? Well, I think, you know, to go back to the former question or the, what we were talking about, yeah. I think then scientific knowledge becomes the default position. And when you say, do you know this, because of the strong uh, sort of materialistic bias we have in the modern world, um, we think of knowledge as something that has to be scientifically verifiable. Otherwise, it's not knowable. And uh, that's... You know, it leads to sort of stupid things like, you know, the the uh, Soviet cosmonaut going into outer space and saying he didn't see God, you know, therefore there's no God. I mean, that, that's right. And it's just utterly inane. And only a person who has no understanding of how, to, how, how different things are known differently hmm. would say such a stupid thing. But I think that is the kind of. Uh, mentality that can arise from an education that doesn't deal explicitly with epistemological questions. So you mentioned that you would emphasize science. Um, how would you say that the, that the, um, the classical education movement and the people that make it up um, could, could grow in their understanding of how science is included in the curriculum? I mean, in what ways are, are we meeting the need for, you know, a science, education in science, and in what ways are we uh, potentially overlooking it, or or even approaching it in, uh, in a poor way? Yeah, I don't know that I'd emphasize science, but I would want to talk more about how important it is for us to understand uh, again how science understands the world, as opposed to you know how how when you're looking it, at the okay. world through the lens of science, you're going to see the world in a certain way. But those, those scientific presuppositions are going to predetermine how you see the world. 
they're, they're going to put blinders on you. And you'll see things very clearly from a scientific perspective, but a lot of things are going to be left out. And I think that's what I meant when I said, you know, it's, I, I would like to have been clearer in the book about what science can do for us and what it can't do for us mm. because of, you know, the presuppositions uh, with which we approach it. I mean, I was thinking the other day, David, about, uh, you know, our, the increasing secularization of our society and how, you know, when you, a lot of people seem kind of, and Christians, believing people seem more or less comfortable with or indifferent to this secularizing trend. But what you have to, I think, appreciate is when, you're, when you say we want a secular society, but one that protects the, our, our First Amendment freedom of religion, well, the problem with that is a secular society is one that assumes no God. It's a godless presupposition because to, you know, uh, it, it sort of gives that first, um, that first assumption to, you know, let's imagine the world without God. It's like the John Lennon song, right? It's let's just imagine that there is no God and now let's build our society on that assumption because if we assume God, then we're going to get into all kinds of fights about, you know, this God versus that God or what God wants. So we're going to start basing our ideas on these ancient sacred texts which have no scientific verifiability or which deny certain people their rights, blah, blah, blah. So let's just build a society and make let's pretend there is no god now we'll allow people who believe there is a god to exist in our society and practice their religion as long as they practice it privately and not in the public square so the, but the problem with that is everything starts from these from our assumptions right it's our assumptions that always determine where we're going to end up and in this case if we start with those assumptions there is no god we're going to end up where it is we are now going into a situation where uh, where um, our values, our beliefs uh, are all defined by either courts or by a vote of a majority of people. So if a majority of people say that black is white, black becomes white because there is no there's nothing else to sort of settle those disagreements other than just a vote so everything becomes highly politicized in other words each group is fighting to uh pass a law or to extend its rights so that certain things you know abortion is a is was an early example of this you know it, abortion was regarded as a grievous sin until uh you know the, the late 60s early 70s and it's still regarded as a grievous sin by most Christians. But uh, it's now not only legal, but it's commonly practiced almost as a form of uh, contraception in this country because it, it became, if you, if you start with the assumption there is no God, then any kind of divine or sacred or religious prohibition against abortion has to be thrown out and you have to deal with it strictly on the basis of, you know, a show of hands. Who's for it? Who's against it? Well, more hands are for it, so we'll let it go. Or 
an assumption like every per, you know, a, a sort of premise that in a godless world, what we what matters is going to be what you know. You can do anything you want to do because this is, of course, what Nietzsche said and Dostoevsky said. In godless word world, everything is permissible. So now everything is permissible, with the caveat that I'm not going to do something that's going to hurt somebody else. Hmm. And that's and that's the governing sort of rule. And of course, in order for that to work with abortion, you have to assume that the fetus is not someone else. Right. It's just a piece of protoplasm, and therefore I can control it and I can destroy it. So. That's my business. That's my whole point about presuppositions. Yeah, anyway, yeah. So. And of course, you can you can do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anyone else, and you can believe that someone else is doing something wrong as long as you don't tell them that they're doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's which, right. I mean, it's sort of everybody's in their own box. Which actually, which actually kind of brings me to a to a second question that was sent in, and this is sent in by by uh, Dan. And he asks, how do we teach our students a moral vision without becoming moralistic and preachy? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. It's a really important question, I think. And we're going to become, as Christians particularly, uh, increasingly put on the defensive about that, I think. Hmm. Uh, And I think it's it's very dangerous, dangerous for us to start with a kind of moralistic response to what's going on around us. Uh, when Jesus was asked about uh, the law, he said very clearly, he said, the law is all, there are really just two commandments. As long as you you keep these two commandments, you're going to keep the law. And both those commandments are commandments of love. Love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, you know, with all your being. The second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. And I think when we raise our children, that's got to be the focus of our our expression to them. How how is it that we love God? How do we show our love for God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our being? And how is it we show our love for our neighbor? And I think it's really important for any home, school, family, or any any uh, religious school to really grapple fundamentally with that question at the very beginning. How are we going to teach our children how to show love, how to love God, and how to love one another? So would you... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just... Would you say that... So then that's how you would define a properly ordered moral vision then? Yes. It all starts with love. Chastity, you know, a concept hugely under attack in in our culture. If you think about it, chastity is about loving rightly. It's what it's all about love, and everything begins with love. And I mean, the, the Christian view, in my in my sense of it, is unless you love rightly, unless you really love, uh, you are um, incapable of appreciating the the moral universe that is set forth in in the holy scriptures. But it's that universe that's set forth that is actually frees you to love rightly. And, and, and that's why I think it has to start with love. I mean, a person who really loves God, like the saints, or really loves other people and shows their love to other people, 
they don't have a problem with, you know, the various prohibitions in scripture. The prohibitions make sense to them and they generally don't run up against them. Uh, so I, anyway, I think that's, I think, I, however, however moralistic, you know, we want to be, if we're not, if we're not basing our, our, our morals on, on positive, on the positive, on loving others and loving God, uh, understanding that love is not, in, in our sense, it's not, a, it's a verb. You know, we don't love unless we show love. And we've got to, it's something we act on. We show, you know, we don't love just because we're in, you know, it's not like being in love or having a feeling of loving God. That's irrelevant. It's what are we doing to show God our love for him? Hmm. And what are we doing to show our neighbor our love for them? And this, if we're actively pursuing love in that way, uh, we're much less likely to be stealing from others or, uh, you know, committing adultery or committing murder or doing all the other sort of don'ts that one finds. Hmm. So then, as, so then, if we want to present that moral vision, then we need to be uh, offering a model of that for our students to to imitate. Is that is that would yeah. that be fair to say? It's a, absolutely, it's a vision of love. It's relating to. It's relating to what it is the students are reading and studying. I mean, it's Dante, right? Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, it's love that moves the universe. It's love that moves everything. And, you know, if I would say, you know, in, in selecting the kinds of things students should be reading and talking about, uh, it's really important that those things uh, depict the kind of love that does draws closer to God and to one another that, that truly expresses love because in that love is also justice. And if we really love others rightly, we're being, we are being just. Hmm. He mentioned the, the idea of being preachy and offering that vision without being preachy to, to what extent would you say teachers and parents should be preachy or at least toe that line? And I suppose you, that might be a word that needs to be defined, but um, what do you think about that? I mean, if you're casting this vision or this model that can be imitated, there obviously needs to be a point where, you know, discipline and, and you know, kind of stating things to our students and, set, you know, setting the rules and things like that needs to happen. But where is the line there? Well, you know, I'm, my, my, my sort of, interest and background is in the school. And I, I don't think there's a place for preaching in the school. Um, I, I think that that's the place for teaching. And if you, if your goal is to get across a moral idea or point or principle, I think it's important to think about how to teach it. I mean, uh, one of the great exemplars of that, of course, is Socrates. I mean, Socrates who began with questions. Because I mean, it was his view, and, it, and I share that view that <clears throat> any sort of moral concern you might have, it can be taught. It can be taught by looking around and seeing the consequences of not having such a, a moral rule, or it can be taught through literature, through you know the, those who express it, uh, you know those who embody that moral principle, or those who don't or who attack it, and what what is the consequence of that? But I would teaching proceeds through questions. 
mm-hmm. not through not through uh, dogmatic statements. And I think uh, that's that's what ought to be going on in schools. Is and, and not only that kind of questioning, but you know, when you talk about the moral universe, we I think we can do a much better job than we do of looking at things that are gone have gone awry or behavior that is really uh, uh, unloving or uh, contrary to the teachings of Scripture. To look at that behavior and really examine it, not just not just attack it or or belittle it or decry it, but look at it and start asking questions about it. What if everybody, you know, ask a Kantian question? What if everybody behaved like that? What if that behavior was a we built? We, can we base a general principle on that behavior and say everyone should do that? What would be the result? Um, I mean, there there are so many good questions to be asked of of bad behavior. And uh, so, I mean, it would be better to go on the attack with questions as well. I guess that's what I'm saying. Hmm. I like the statement that you just made. Teaching proceeds through questions, not through dogmatic statements. That's worth Right. Or thinking about a little bit. Um, let's let's kind of shift a little bit here and go to a different sort of question. Well, I mean, a somewhat different sort of question. Christina um, says or asks, can mythos and logos be explained in different words? She says, I think I understand a bit what is mythos, but I can't seem to wrap my mind about or around what is logos. How would, what do you think about that? Well, these are both, you know, Greek terms, and they're extremely rich terms. I think you can take them sort of in many different directions. Sure. And the, yeah. But the direction I would take that in, in, in terms of giving Christina a simple sort of way of distinguishing, I, I, I shared earlier my sort of definition of classical education. You know, the notion of, of you know, the development of style through language, and of conscience through myth, and there I'm using logos as a placeholder for language. Uh, and, and when I'm, because, you know, logos is translated, of course, by in the New Testament, it was, uh, it was the term used to describe Christ, and it's translated as the word. Uh, the logos was a Stoic term also, which talked about, and the Stoics believe that the whole universe is all tied together through some rational principle, some overriding intelligence or reason which was the logos and that also is logos and it makes a fitting you know christ to the early christian philosophers that was christ he was the creator as well as sort of the the reason the the logic if you like that held everything together uh that made everything new so uh logos what is logos logos versus mythos is um Logos, if you like, is, uh, you know, I contrast it, for example, by saying um, Plato was about logos, Homer was about mythos. Uh, hmm. I, I've always thought in, t- in talking with young people, you know, young people much prefer an anecdote to an analysis. You can stand up and you can make an, an you know, you can analyze something, or you can stand up and you can tell a story. Everyone's going to listen to the story, but after two minutes, they're just going to zone out of an analysis. And analysis is logos. Uh, anecdote is mythos. And 
education, I think, proceeds on both of those fronts all the time. You're, you know, reasoning with, with your students. You want them to be reasonable. You want them to be able to put forward a persuasive argument. You want them to see the weakness in other people's arguments. But at the same time, you're looking at stories all the time. Um, you know, it's, are you making an argument, which is a kind of logos point, or are you describing something or telling a story, which is more the mythos uh, part of the education? But I think education has to be, you know, it's a balance between both of those things. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think it makes sense. Um, Brianna asks, and um, let's see, she asks, when you gave your idea for a curricula in norms, what was it that you were trying to have your students understand with the book choices that you made? Um, well, obviously the book choices, uh, you know, were very idiosyncratic. I mean, they were just my choices. And, and I encouraged people, I think, when I wrote the book to, you know, not to take them as sort of gospel. There was nothing authoritative about the choices. But the kinds of considerations I was making when I made those choices, I think, were, first, I wanted books that dealt with what I would call the existential questions, you know, the really fundamental questions young people, you know, all of us as human beings need to ask, you know, why am I here? What, what constitutes the good life? What, you know, who is God? What does he expect from me? What do I owe God? What do I owe my fellow man? Um, you know, how should I, how should I live? How should I compose my life? Uh, what choices are good choices? What choices are bad choices? How should I use the freedoms I have? Is, is freedom an absolute, you know, should I be free to do whatever I want? If not, what are the limits? I mean, all those kind of basic questions. <clears throat> so I, I chose books that I felt would answer those questions. I also chose books that I, uh, I felt depicted virtue and, and offered wisdom uh, to young people. Uh, gave them sort of, uh, I call it, I think, the, uh, the ancient tyrannizing image, gave them uh, models to, uh, models of behavior, models of uh, life that they could, uh, you know, look up to. Uh, also books that show them, you know, the mistakes that can be made and what the consequences of those mistakes might be. Uh, and finally, I think, you know, I, I wrote this before E.D. Hirsch wrote his, you know, founded his core knowledge foundation and did his, his work. But I'm sure that that was something you can't have a culture or a civilization unless the people in it share certain cultural touchstones. I mean, how could you be an American without having some working knowledge of the Constitution or 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 having read and maybe even memorized the Gettysburg Address. I mean, how can you, there are certain documents, and I think this extends to literature as well, that bring people in a society together. Hmm. Uh, I was noticing in the news today that they've just uh, found what they thought are the bones of uh, Miguel de Cervantes. Hmm. And, you know, that would be true of Spain. I mean, how, how could you consider yourself to be a Spaniard or how could you have really enter into uh, that society's uh, mindset or thought processes or have conversation with your fellow Spaniards 
if you hadn't read uh, Don Quixote or didn't know who he was. Um, so I think I chose the books too that I that in my little fantasy world I wish every American child had read, so that when I run into them as adults, we have we have that in common. We, you know, we can talk about Melville or or whoever. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious, uh, which are, are there two or three books that you know you mentioned Don Quixote being kind of a quintessential Spanish book that every Spaniard should know. What are the I don't know two or three novels or, or works that you would say say aside from the political, the Constitution and the Gettysburg Address and things like that, which you already mentioned. Are there any novels that you would say all Americans have to read to be an American? Um. Well, yeah, good question. I, I, that's, know, this I was, was not a question sent in. This is purely my curiosity. <laughs> and this is a very personal answer. Uh, <laughs> oh, I think uh, in terms of American books, I would, I, I, everyone's going to have their own list, but I think, you know, the sort of the traditional books that came out of the 19th century, like uh, uh, Moby Dick, um, uh, The Scarlet Letter, uh, those two books really strike me as very American in 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 what they were trying to express, hmm. um, and would be great books. I mean, if you've read those two books, those two American books in the nineteenth century, and for a nonfiction book, probably De Tocqueville. Hmm. Uh, if you've read those three books, I would say in the nineteenth century, you have the. Uh, you can put down very deep roots in that soil uh, for an understanding of what this uh, experiment in America was all about. You, uh, so, yeah. You mentioned, you know, that those books were from the 19th century. Uh, one of the questions we got was, was kind of related to that, and, and that is how should a classical educator, um, whether in the school or in the home, approach the modern novel um, or modern, I guess, modern fiction and storytelling in general. you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, very carefully. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I don't, uh, um, there are some wonderful modern novels and writers. uh, And I, and I think uh, I would, I, I guess my bias, I would tend to go more with short stories in the modern Era. Why is that? Well, because first, I think uh, I think the short story does a better job in some ways in the modern era of it's more it's more an authentic expression of who we are and what literature has become. Uh, hmm. You know, most even most films now are based on short stories, not on full novels, and uh, and I'm also. Uh, the short story writers uh, it's, it's I think just a more honest expression of how we spend our time and uh, I don't see us you know fewer and fewer people are reading the long novels especially the ones that are really ambitious um, and I, frankly I think a lot of the modern novels are just are, are in a way, I mean, they're of course you'd expect this, like modern art. 
I mean, I, I see modern novels and modern art and all of modern music for that matter as a, as a uh, honest depiction of sort of where civilization is or is going, but it's not something that I'm, uh, again, that I would, that I would choose or select and hold up for emulation or admiration to a young person. I think it's something they might be able to come to later in life. Uh, you know, I would, I, I would not take a child. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take a child to the MoMA until they had, had completely, uh, you know, until they had seen the Prado and the Louvre. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think they need to understand sort of where we've been, uh, in the past in order to understand and, and be able to look with a, confident and critical eye at what modern artists and writers are producing. Are there any uh, uh, short story writers or novelists that you would say uh, that, that we should be reading right now? You know, current, say currently living. Um, I don't, uh, living. Um, boy, I wish I could cut my, my library behind me. <laughs> I'd love to have five minutes to sort of rifle it and, and get back to you on that. I mean, the, the writers who are, they're not living, but they're also certainly worthy reader, worth reading like Eudora Welty and Flannery O'Connor, uh, mm-hmm. writers like that that express, uh, you know, of course, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, come to these things with a strong uh, Christian bias. Sure. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and though, but I don't, I don't, I have to be honest, I don't, I don't know of anybody, Christians right now, who are writing at that level of, of uh, depth. Um, and I'm sure after this interview, I will think of somebody and, and be upset with myself for having failed to mention him. <laughs> I suppose we'll get, a, I'll, we'll get some comments saying probably Wendell Berry or Marilyn Robinson. Um, well, and I should have said Wendell. I mean, I think Wendell Berry and Marilyn, they're both, you know, my, Wendell Berry was my wife's, uh, was my wife's English teacher at UK. So, I mean, I should, oh. definitely, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, okay. I have a couple of, uh, I guess we'll call them rapid fire questions just from some people that just, you know, wanted to get to know you a little bit, I suppose. Um, they're, they're, I mean, they're, I don't want to say they're silly questions, but they're, they're not going to take a great deal of thought or of particularly long answer. But um, if you could bring only one book to a desert island, what would it be? The Brothers K. Oh, interesting. Why is that? You, there was no hesitation from you there. No, no. <laughs> I, I, I reread The Brothers K, probably have reread it every decade of my life. I just think it's so fascinating that Dostoevsky saw so clearly 150 years ago exactly where everything was going hmm. and uh to me it's still it's it's not just a novel it's prophetic hmm. and uh and looking back again at our earlier discussion about presuppositions he saw very clearly that when the presuppositions changed when when uh, science replaced uh god that what would follow from that? Hmm. 
Okay. Uh, I was looking at Brothers K on my shelf last night, debating whether or not I should pull it off and read it some more. Um, but then it's it's so long. <laughs> it's such a. It takes. So, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I have that kind of attention span anymore. Um, well, that's well. You're just proving my point about. <laughs> I'm kind of joking and kind of not at the same time. It, it is a long read, but I, I always hate it when it ends. And it ends, you know, in a rather sort of... It's, it doesn't really end, it just kind of stops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you finally, you know, sort of wore out too, but... Yeah. <laughs> you know, but the problem is a lot of people, I think, started and they don't get far enough into it to really appreciate how extraordinary it is. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the, the whole... The whole chapter on, uh, you know, when uh, when Ivan is having his hallucinations and seeing the devil, uh, that's just that's just brilliant. I think. I mean, it's it's better than screw tape letters. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, another reasonably simple question. I suppose you live in Montana, so you live in the West. Do you have a favorite uh, Western novel or favorite Western book? Oh, I like uh, Guthrie's novel uh, on Montana. I like uh, I, I like the writings of uh, well Ivan Doig. He's written some nice things. Um, this House of Sky was was a lo- is a lovely book. I uh, I like uh, oh he taught writing at Stanford. Who oh Steg- Stegner? Yeah, Stegner. I love Stegner stuff. I like uh, Angle of Repose. I thought was a really good western type of novel uh, so yeah no there's some wonderful their their writings really evoke the west the other book i i just love i've given it as gifts for many years it's certainly the saddest book i've ever read is uh bury my heart at wounded knee by d brown mm. so, which is which is fun to which is fun in the sense to read that it's really a, it's a book of short stories uh, short stories, each dealing with how we dealt with the Native Americans who lived out here, uh, and it's it's a sad story. And 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 I'm not I don't want to romanticize the Indian. I mean, there were many cruel and horrible things about the Indians, and also many noble and worthy things about them. But the way we uh, and I say we, the European uh, Europeans who came out here and our government, the way we dealt with the native peoples is really, it's a huge cautionary tale for all of us. In fact, the way we're still dealing with them, hmm. uh, I think is, is sad because we've created a whole dependent people inside our nation, which, uh, you know, it's, it, it, I'm not saying it's easy. It's it's hard to know exactly what the right thing to do is, but we've done we've certainly done the wrong things. Hmm. Um, what if you could only have one meal? What would you eat? I, I always li- <laughs> I always like the meal question. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, that's a tough question. Uh, I, I'd have my wife's shrimp and grits. I hmm. think. That's a that's a that's a good choice. I haven't heard the shrimp and grits choice before. <laughs> um, okay, here, here's another quick one for you. What um, what would you? Wait a minute. Where are you? Are you getting shrimp in Montana? Are you just going out to the lake behind the house and shrimping? No, we uh, 
we do all of our shrimping at Costco here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, here, here's one for you. What, um, besides, you know, when you're not studying or traveling, uh, what are you doing with your time? What, what's, what are some hobbies that David Hicks likes to, to do? Well, we, uh, oh, there are lots of things, you know, I, West of the moon is a large place. And so I'm constantly, uh, you know, pruning, pruning the olive trees, uh, feeding the birds, working in the garden, uh, uh, planting trees, uh, irrigating, you know, it's the West. So everything has to be irrigated if you want it to grow. So there's a lot of outdoor work, which I really love. And uh, other than that, you know, I mean, we spend a lot of time reading. Um, we built a new church here uh, last year, and Betsy and I did the stonework on the church. And it was a wonderful, mm. fun project because we, we, it's a small church but there, and, and a poor church. But we have a lot of talent in our church, especially from Eastern Europe. The Eastern Europeans have come over. A lot of them are builders or have or art, artisans, have other skills. And so we figured out a way where we could actually build the church without having to you know, raise the money that normally we would have needed. I think maybe you can only do this in Montana because in most states you'd have to have a license this and a license that to do all the work. Hmm. Yeah. Or even a you know, or even a unionized person. Well, in Montana, you don't have to do that. You know, Montana's the only state left where you can actually be buried in your own backyard. You don't have to be, uh, you know, as, as I think you have to have like five or ten acres. But you, if that's the case, you can just dig a hole and, and put yourself in it. <laughs> so that's you just, uh, you just have to have someone cover you. You just have to have someone there to you know, right? Throw the dirt on your face. So it's a. Uh, it, it creates those kind of opportunities, which I probably don't exist in many places anymore, but it was a fantastic experience. We all got together and I think to the glory of God built a really beautiful uh, temple and uh, it's, it's, it brought us all a lot closer together. I think in many ways, everyone, you know, everyone was able to contribute something. It was really fun. Mm -hmm. Okay. Two final questions for you. Um, <clears throat> and this is the here's your penultimate question where where should uh we begin with a kin kindergarten age child for a classical education when do you begin more structured learning uh and or using a curriculum this one is not my question but it does it is meaningful to me because i have a three and a half year old who's starting to be interested in things like that so i i'm i'm personally intrigued to hear to, to hear what answer you're going to give for this one well, I assume we're talking about someone who's going to be homeschooling, or yeah, think? yeah. But I think that's I think that's where the question is coming from. Yes. So, yeah. so answer. Yeah, you can speak to that, and I assume some of the principles will apply in a in a traditional school setting, even though without some of the freedoms. Yeah. Well, if you're starting in kindergarten, you're starting too late. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know. What do you mean by that, though? I mean, you say you're kidding, but what, what are you kind of getting at there? Well, what I mean is that I think when you have a child, when you decide to have a child, you know, it, it, it needs to start from the, the moment the child, you have to start thinking of yourself as the child's teacher from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And of course, you teach through love. Uh, and we're back to our whole discussion about love. You, you know, you are an exemplar of love. But the, uh, 
that even in that first year, I mean, all everyone knows and all the studies show that uh, that that first year is a critical year in which the child must be held in your arms constantly. You know, it's a, there's something about that bond that has to happen in the first year. And if it doesn't, it, you can't catch up. I mean, at, at that point, there's going to be a scar on that child, hmm. on that child's soul, if you like. Uh, and it's going to be, it, you're putting that child in a difficult position throughout, throughout life. So knowing knowing that what you have to do if you take on the responsibility of being a parent from the very beginning, as soon as the child, in fact, even before the child comes out of the womb, uh, that is really important. Now, as far as educating the child, when you get on toward kindergarten, my feeling, and it's back to the question in a second way about the logos, um, one of the best things you can do for a child, I think, early on is... Uh, expose that child to a lot of, um, you know, to a second or third language. Uh, mm. In our schools at Meritas, we we decided uh, a few years ago that we were going to, every child who came to our school, this either starts in kindergarten or first grade in all of our schools, will study uh, strings for four, for three or four years. It's mandatory. You don't even have a choice. You just come in and you're going to study strings. You know, well, why strings? Well, you know, because uh, just, you know, rather than give them sort of a, a general music appreciation course, this teaches them music. Also, the, the cool thing about the violin is it's an unfretted instrument. So they have to develop early on a, an ear. When, you know, when, you, when you're playing the violin, you have to hear that you're hitting the right note. It, you, don't, you just don't know it because you have your finger on the right fret. Mm. Uh, and so you de- develop very early on the child. And we know that in terms of the way a child's brain is developing very rapidly at that age, that is the time where they're going to pick up sounds. They're going to pick up language very quickly. And if you let those years go by and haven't given them those opportunities to learn that second language, to be around, you know, speakers of that other language, to learn that instrument, they'll never, you know, if if they start when they're 12, when most of us started learning a second language, they'll never speak it fluently or absolutely, you know, with native fluency or correctness because the brain is just not, it's not it's not taking it in at that point uh, in the same way. So it's knowing. I mean, I would encourage people to look at what's the, the, look at the modern research on brain development. There's so much going on right now, and, and see what is happening in the brain, and to tie tie what they're doing with the child at home with with what's happening in that child's brain. And of course, the other standard is. You know, children need to be read to constantly, and that should happen well before kindergarten and should continue well after elementary school. So the, so the three things you mentioned are, you just mentioned, they should be read to constantly, they should be exposed to second and sometimes third languages, and they should be uh, learning music, specifically, if possible, strings. Um, is there a time or a way or a an age when you think, you know, formal learning should begin, you know, this, this sit down, do a lesson learning, or would you say, you know, there's a lot of talk in classical education right now, specifically in homeschooling 
Well, you got this whole unschooling movement, you know, like most of the schooling being done while playing or um, things like that. And that's, I know that's not the whole definition of unschooling, but there's a lot of talk about that sort of thing. So from your perspective, is there a time or an age when the more formal, structured side of, of schooling should begin? I, I guess I assume it depends on the family, but... Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I heard that word structured in the question you originally asked, and I kind of walked around it because I'm not really <laughs> sure what it means. It's It reminds me a little bit of conversations I sometimes with, have with fellow believers who are really put off by liturgy, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always I try to point out, look, it doesn't matter where you go to church, there is a liturgy. It's just, you know it's just a different liturgy. I mean, there is, there is always a structure to anything. Sure. If yeah. It's if it's completely unstructured, it, it isn't, it just doesn't even exist. I mean, there's always a sort of a frame around something that's happening all the time. So I think the question really for me would be uh, for small children, it's important to structure things differently, to keep things uh, not unstructured, but, uh, you know, things should be play, you know, often for children. And children should also have their own time to just play with themselves. Uh, give, them, give them things, you know, whether it's blocks or something like that, to, uh, to just create their own things. I mean, there, there needs to be a lot of that opportunity and time to play with one another, to do things collaboratively, to, to you know, to build teams. I think, though, it's, it's smart when you're doing that. And I'm not, a, by the way, I should have said this to me, I'm not, you know, this is a personal opinion. I'm not the world's authority on early childhood education. But I think there are tremendous opportunities with small children to give them the right kinds of toys to play with, toys that really uh, uh, fire their imagination or, or, or provide them with opportunities to do things they wouldn't otherwise have thought of doing. Mm. Uh, and also give them games that uh, encourage them to, say, work together to achieve something rather than just in- individually to, to achieve, but games that you know, make everybody in the group dependent on everybody else. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's worth it as a parent to really think through what kind of play your children are involved in. And, uh, and, and then I think it's also important to get out of the way and not be constantly, you know, manipulating and trying to make things go the way you want them to go, but let the children, you know, have their own time. But I also do think that some structured lesson by the time they're in kindergarten, some sit down time, even if it's only 10 minutes to memorize something is, uh, I think memory is really important at that age, by the way, and that's something that's not often thought to be important, but I know the memories, my parents, that was their, we were not homeschooled, but we had to memorize a verse from the Bible every day before coming to the dinner table at night mm-hmm. and recited. And uh, it, was, it was our family tradition, and uh, it sounds pretty draconian now, but at the time we were four boys, we all did it, and uh, those, 
that experience is precious to me now. I mean, I, I, I remember a lot of things now that I would not have stored away if that hadn't happened. And I think it helped me as a student later on, too. I was able to retain a lot more. And it's not, not retain it just to play it back. But when you have all those things in play in your memory, you can start making connections and you can start, you know, when you're reading Cervantes or you're reading Dante, you suddenly, you know, that phrase from the gospel just comes back to you or that story from Genesis comes back to you. You understand the illusion. You're, you're just, you're working at a much richer cognitive level than if you didn't have all that, that stuff to draw upon. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like good soil. Yeah, like good soil. But memory is really great for those, even before kindergarten. I mean, nursery rhymes. I mean, kids love to remember, memorize things or to sing things. And uh, yeah. singing is so important. I, I, there's, you know, drawing, drawing is so important. Mm. And, uh, and by the way, I think, you know, I, my bias in, in terms of drawing or art is to give children at a very early age some just basic instruction on, on drawing rather than just to set them loose with a crayon. Because, hmm. uh, you know, I'm not big on coloring, you know, in between, the, in, in, you know, in the lines, but I, I would be big on just showing them how, you know, there are very basic skills in terms of drawing something. Uh, and I don't know why those skills couldn't be taught to a child at a very early age and allow them to then just draw, hmm. draw what they see. Yeah. Well, I've, you know, I've, like I said, I have a three-year-old and a two-year-old and I've, they instinctively, like these things are things they seem to do instinctively. Like they, you know, they just memorize nursery rhymes from books that we read or songs that we sing to them on their own. And they, they, begin trying to write and pretend to read and things like that on their own. And it doesn't, <clears throat> I mean, I suppose providing some structure is useful, but there's so much they just kind of inherently are start to do. I think, I guess just because they're human beings. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, think of the day, I mean, honestly, think of the day as a liturgy, right? What kind of liturgy is your day going to look like? I mean, you might want to be very sort of Quakerish and, you know, it's very unstructured. But there's still a liturgy. You go to a Quaker service, there's, there, there's still a liturgy there. There's yeah. still a structure in which things happen or are made to happen. And uh, I think to think of your day in, that, in those terms, and you know, every family is going to have its own answer, but I think having thought through, this is what our days are going to look like. You know, this is, this is, we're gonna, you know, these are the things where we're all going to come, these are the things where we're all going to come together and do things a certain way. And I think those rituals in the home are are what really teach children a lot, and and it also what gives them a sense of security and safety and uh, a feeling of belonging, feeling of purpose in their little lives, which they couldn't articulate, but it just gives them that that structure that allows them to know, you know, and this is how I. You know, this is when we come to the table. This is how we eat. This is how I greet a stranger in my home. This is how, you know, the saddest thing is to see young people who meet a strange adult and they, and they, they freeze. They don't know, you know, what do I do here? Mm-hmm. You know, and essentially walk away from them. And those are all little protocols or what used to be called good manners. Uh, 
that children need to be taught at a very early age. And once they're taught them, it's not, it, again, we're back to the moralism. It's not that these things are confining to them. It's liberating. Because now as a child, I know, I see this strange person. I, I, I'm, I have the confidence to walk up to them and introduce myself and ask them their name. Mm. Yeah. If I don't have the, if I haven't been taught the little protocol for how to do that, I'm paralyzed. Mm. Yeah. Okay, one final question that was sent in. And um, you've been on the, at least on the periphery of, I think, classical education for a long time. Um, you've been involved in schools for a long time. But based on what you've seen, um, how or where do you think that um, the classical education com community um, can or, or should grow? Like, what's the next step that, or the next area that you think um, the, the community of people who are trying to truly educate classically um, would benefit most from kind of focusing on in our own, in our own growth. And that can be individual or just the community as, as a whole, I guess that are kind of one and the same. Boy, I, <laughs> I, I am probably the wrong person to answer this question because as you say, I mean, I, I, I've seen homeschoolers, who are trying to do this. And I've seen, I've visited in, uh, some classical Christian schools. Um, they would, any of them would be in a much better position than I would to answer this kind of a question. I, uh, you know, I, 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 I guess I see the country, uh, our, our, our country, um, see the problems that even the Catholic schools are just having being themselves, you know, they're yeah. under attack constantly. Uh, and I think that uh, I, I don't see that trend going away. I think it's going to become more pronounced as we continue again to to see. We're back to Dostoevsky and the Brothers Karamazov. Uh, we're back to the, the godless secular premise. I mean, as we as the, as that premise continues to play out, uh, you know, the logic will be impeccable, but the conclusions will be all wrong for us, certainly as Christians. Hmm. And we'll have to create um, stronger cultures within our homes and stronger cultures within our churches and in our own communities to uh, withstand the just the massive influence that a hedonistic, you know, pagan culture will have on us and particularly on our children. Hmm. Uh, so what, what's the next stage? I, well, probably the next stage is to throw, you know, is to throw out all the televisions. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, how do we, how do we, how to prepare our children for life in the world without allowing the world to completely uh, destroy their faith and corrupt them? And uh, that's a tough, that, I mean, I, I, I don't have an easy answer for that i don't know pray i guess uh, yeah we have to pray a lot and we have to be willing to you know again sort of the things we've been talking about start at a very early age and educating them create strong cultures in the home make sure that the, they're being exposed to the very best things if we if we start at an early age exposing them to the very best i think as they get older and start to experience what they you know 
what the world has to offer, and at least have uh, a, 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 a baseline, a, t- a touch, a touchstone from which to judge what's coming at them. Uh, you know, I mean, if you really, you know, love the music of Mozart or Charles Wesley, for that matter, uh, and, and really understand it, you know, it's you're going to have a, almost an allergic reaction when you hear uh, rap music, right? So hmm. I think there's some there's some value in that, or you know, if if, if you've really but if you don't have those, and this is where the classical education comes in. If you don't have those touchstones, if you haven't really appreciated and been exposed to really great art, great music, great thinking, uh, great literature, you'll not, you're not going to have the, you know, you won't have anything against which to judge all the garbage that's going to be coming at you. Uh, when you're out in the world, <laughs> but I don't know. That wasn't really an answer to your question, David. I'm sorry, but I, I feel <laughs> presumptuous of me to provide, <laughs> to provide, you know, to suggest how the, the classical Christian movement could move forward. I have not. It has moved forward at an amazing rate, in my opinion, because when I wrote Norms, it didn't exist, and I, it, I didn't even envision it. You know, I just wrote norms out of my own uh, personal observations of what was happening in education in America and and uh, what where I thought we had sort of taken a, a wrong turn. And I didn't envision a classical Christian school movement at all. Thank you for joining us on Quiddity as we refreshed ourselves at Cisterns of Learning dug long ago drawing from springs too deep for taint. You can send your comments and questions to podcast at searcyinstitute.org. Hope you'll join us next week for another episode and be sure to check out the other shows on the Searcy Podcast Network.